Coming up today, it's episode 84 of In the Front Row with Mike McCarroll, featuring writer and author Scoop Jackson. We hear about the origins of his name and talk about his career that has origins in hip-hop and also in sports. Currently co-author of a book called Ice that features George Gervin. We learn about the lessons he learned from the NBA Hall of Famer. That plus his fandom for the White Sox, the Knicks, and much, much more. It's episode 84 featuring Scoop Jackson right here on In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Well, Scoop, we appreciate you joining us here today. A lot to get into. Your background, obviously the new book that's out now, Ice, uh, with George Gervin and, and your role with that as a co-writer of that. But uh, let's start at the beginning. And it's, you know, your, your, your given name is Robert, but it's Scoop Jackson. Take us behind the scenes. Tell us about that and, and how that nickname came about. Yeah, it was kind of given to me at birth, man. My, um, my mother's brother said to my father, who was a newspaper reporter at the time, um, he said the news, of you, well, I was born the day after Kennedy's assassination. And um, at the hospital, my mother's brother made a joke to my father. He said, Bob, the news that you having a son is going to scoop, you know, Kennedy. And from they really stuck that with me at birth. It's, it's you know, there was a legend that's on my birth certificate. And then when I got my hands on my birth certificate, I found out it wasn't. But that's all, it's always been there. But then again, my father, we got birth certificate issues in my family. My father didn't know that his real name was not Robert until he was in his 30s. His real name is Bobby. So I'm supposed to be Robert III. But technically, I'm not because my father on his birth certificate. So it, it, it's all jacked up. But no, Scoop was given to me since birth um, as a kid. It was uh, always Scoopy with the Y as I got older. Um, the why got dropped, which happens every now and then, but you know, my wife and people that have known me since day one, like aunties and uncles and all, they still call me Scoopy and it's been scooped to this day. So, you know, I, I guess it's, um, and I know my father, I guess, because, his, because of his newspaper background. So I try to, I, I try to hold it down as best as possible. Hey, you mentioned your father. He was a, a writer for the Rocky Mountain News in Denver. How much of an influence was he on you and, and, and you know, you becoming a writer and, and what you're doing now? Not much at all, man. It's a strange story because as a reporter, and he was one of the first black newspaper reporters in the country. As a reporter, I kind of got to watch what he did from afar, um, but still stay connected to it. And I've, I never wanted to be a reporter. I never looked at the writing aspect of it. I looked at what most reporters' jobs are before they get to having a reporter story and that's to gather information and in watching them you know from afar do what they do it it, it be, I looked at it as invasive now my father and my mother divorced when I was in second grade so you have to understand what I'm the, the prism in which I'm seeing that through you know I'm looking at what he did up close while he was in the house up until I was seven maybe years old, something like that, you form different opinions. So I saw my father and saw the way they gathered news. They would run up on people and rush people and microphones and, and you know, invasion of privacy and all that. And I'm like, I never wanted to do that. So, and even as I got older and watched him do what he did for, you know, a few years, it still became invasive to me. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know, um, that didn't seem attractive to me. That nothing, that's nothing I wanted to be a part of. 
Um, but I think the writing side, as I got older and older, um, I became to recognize how good he really was because he was nominated for two Pulitzers. You know, as a kid, that don't mean anything to you. Yeah. <laughs> but in reading what he was writing when he got to Denver, you know, I'm like, you know, guy was really, really gifted. He really put in the work. So I gained another appreciation for, for what he was that he did. But I never looked at it as this is something I want to do. It wasn't, he wasn't the path. He wasn't the North star for me to get into it um, because of the way I viewed what it was that he did as a kid. But as an adult, I can say that um, it's, it's, especially as a professional, it's pushed me to have a level that I have to reach and maintain. You know, not that I'm like, I'm trying to, you know, get nominated for Pulitzer like my father, but I understand there's a legacy there. And it's my responsibility now that I'm in this to uphold the legacy that he at least set, whether I'm connected to it or not. You know, I want him to, you know, live the back nine of his life knowing that my son got to the same field and, you know, he held it down. You know, whether it's Bobby, Robert, or Scoop, he held he held that Jackson name down. So, yeah, you know, it, it did it in a unique way, but not in the way most people would think it did. And so, you know, that influenced a little bit. You go to Xavier University in Louisiana, then eventually to Howard as well. Did you go there thinking that you were going to be a writer? And, and with that, you know, in the, the front of your mind? Never, never at all. I went to, uh, I started off at Xavier with a major one to be a lawyer. And I love politics. So my major was political science. Um, it's at the, at the end of my sophomore year, we, we didn't have any money. So I had to drop out. And like, really, I've always worked, but I had to really start working, like working for some real money, not working at McDonald's like I was doing. You know, I had to really like gain some money to pay back what we owed and get enough money to get back in school. You know, um, so the the initial thing was to like, you know, really follow law. But as I got into law and what it took to become a lawyer and start studying cases, my interest waned away from that. Because I'm like, man, I'm early into this and you still have to go to law school after this. I, it's, it's not holding my interest. My, my love, you know, my love for it started to shift. But I've always been interested in media, newspapers. I always want to have my own magazine, you know, want to be a program director at a radio station, you know, love to advertise, all that stuff. I always love those areas of communication. So by the time I got my money together and went back to Xavier, to finish out my final two years, I switched my I switched my major from political science to communications. But by the time I went back, they were like, you are literally two classes away from graduating with a major in political science because I was front heavy on taking political science classes. Mm -hmm. So I ended up double majoring, basically. First two years, I took the bulk of my class in political science. The next two, three years, I took them in uh, mass communications. So I finished with a double major, um, but never with an intent to be a writer or reporter or anything. It, it was to, you know, find some space in some area of communication, you know, um, but it took a professor there by the name of Dr. Kent. Um, and once again, we're kids, man. We, you know, we're not really kids like I was back in the day, but like 18 years old, and I'm, I'm watching TV and I see a commercial and I tell Dr. Kent, I'm like, hey, man, I want to get into advertising. I see. I want, you know, I want to. He said, okay. And I think he knew it happened. You know, I think he's been around kids long enough to know that 
man, you're 18 years old. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. You're 19, whatever it was. I was a junior at the time. So basically, man, he gave me a test and put a paper clip on my desk and said, tomorrow, well, next class, because it was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. He said, next class, I want you to come here and write me something about this paper clip. And I'm saying, what do you want me to write? He said, give me something about this paper clip. So I literally took it home, man, and that messed with my hair. I'm like, it's a paper clip. What is, you know, what is that right? So I literally came back in this class. And I really had nothing. I'm like, I don't get, you know, I didn't get the assignment. And he said, that's advertising. You say you want to get an advertising. Your job as an advertiser is to tell me why I need this paper clip in my life. Your job in advertising is to sell me this paper clip. He said, you all sit up there and watch TV and think making commercials is cute and all this, that, and the other. But it starts with writing. You have to write something to move me about this paperclip. And that's when I was like, oh, you know, I, okay, I get, you know, it snapped in my head. Like, oh, so this is what this is. And really, that's what started me really leaning into writing. That interest in trying to make that happen. And literally, I've been spending the next 30, 35 years trying to write something about that paperclip to move people. And that's really how it started. So it never started off as like me wanting to be in, and had no interest in being a journalist, no interest in really being a writer. But that moment with Dr. Kent shaped me on the importance of writing and the power you, the power that writing ha can have and the skill you have to have to be powerful and have moves and be able to shape words to move people. And um, by the time I went to grad school, it, I still didn't necessarily want to be a writer. I still wanted to focus in some area of communications. But I understood that writing was the core of everything, regardless of what area of communication you got into. Writing was going to be the core. Well, that paper clip uh, eventually led to some some pretty good jobs and good publications as well. Uh, a lot yeah, of basketball related with Slam, um, you know, hoop inside stuff as well. One of your early, you know, stories articles you wrote was about uh, Shaquille O'Neal. So you mentioned you didn't want to be invasive, put that camera, put that microphone in people's faces, but what you were doing, did it give you a chance to, to really dive deeper in and, and spend some time with some of these players? Well, what it did, because it was a magazine platform as opposed to a newspaper platform and the deadlines are shaped differently, it allowed, well, it allows us, but I'll just say me, it allowed me to approach the subject matter and the subjects a little differently and not with the sense of urgency that often comes when you're a journalist at a newspaper, at a daily. So um was able to finesse situations in a way that there became a comfort level between the people I was doing stories on and whatever it was that we're talking about. And a lot of times what I've learned um, in this business is that newspapers do not allow that to happen. The space is not there and the time is not there. Um, but with doing magazine, like we're doing Slam, especially Slam, because that's where we really started off at in building that magazine. It gave us time because we weren't even a monthly magazine at the time. We were out every six weeks. Um, and the space that you had to shape these stories and, and spend time with players and really get to know them and have your work be identified in, in, in a less crowded space because there weren't a lot of annual well, basketball magazines that were coming out more than one time a year. So the competition was different. And that space allowed the subject matters to really get into your work and know you without even knowing you personally. So all that worked in our favorite slam definitely worked in my favorite slam. So, you know, um, like when we first started off with Shaquille O'Neal, that was my first feature story with slam. 
he basically gave me the, you know, he played me. He's like, oh, man, you know, yeah, well, I give, give me five minutes, you know. You know, and I gave him five minutes, and they're like, man, Shaq left three minutes ago. You know, I'm like, you know. <laughs> uh, so I finally got him, and we finally did the interview. And once the story came out, I saw him, like, months later, because it was his first time in the NBA Finals. And I was there at the Finals. And before the game, he ran across the court and gave me a hug and thanked me for the story. He didn't apologize for how he played me. You know, and that space kind of gave, you know, I started learning how to approach things, but that space and ability to give those players that type of, you know, foundation, you know, that type of real estate to tell stories about them really started to resonate. And, um, you know, Shaq was one of the first, but then there were others just afterwards and slam became a thing. And my writing became a thing because of the uniqueness in which I was telling their stories in a way that most other journalists at that time weren't. Um, so, it was, you know, and once again, as I said earlier, I was trying to certain degree hold down the legacy, you know, like I had a, 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 a inborn responsibility as a writer to write at a certain level, you know, so all of that kind of played itself into a great situation where I literally was doing almost the exact opposite of what my father was forced to do as a newspaper reporter, but as a magazine writer, not necessarily a reporter, as a magazine writer, as a magazine journalist, I had, you know, my approach and my space was different and I tried to do what I could to take advantage of that. And, you know, it, it, it ended up being pretty successful. And a lot of sports, as we talked about, but also, you know, you transition a little bit to, to hip hop as well. You, oh, without, covering without. hip hop at the time, and now it's you know fifty years of, of hip hop as well. Did, did kind of one connect to the other? Is that the you know how you transitioned a little bit? No, well, here's the thing: I never it, the transition was to sports. Hip hop was always, you know, black culture, music, and hip hop were always at the forefront because that's what I did my master's uh, journal on. Mm. I, you know, I did my math. Well, it wasn't a thesis because I wanted to be on the journal, but. It was my quote-unquote master's thesis at Howard University. I did the first academic study in the country on hip-hop. And because there was none out there. I couldn't even use anything as a swatch or something to play off of. You know, I, th I think Houston Baker was the first writer who ever really did something, but it really wasn't an academic study. But th that was what I got my master's degree in, studying the pro-social effect hip-hop could have on the black community. Mm. And um, it ended up being a book. I just pulled the study out of it. And just gathered the information and turned it into a book form. But and I was writing for various rap magazines at the time, you know, stuff in the source. I was writing for a rap sheet in LA. Uh, we started a rap newspaper called Flop Paper here in Chicago. Uh, there was rap pages in Los Angeles, you know. Um, everything was based on music and hip hop at the time. So the transition was to sports and basketball. The foundation was built off of music. So while we were doing Slam and we conceptualized the magazine Double XL, that, that wasn't a transition at all. That was like, hey, let's get back to where we started at. <laughs> so we were able to create a magazine in a landscape where hip hop journalism had become a thing as well. But our job, like we saying earlier about Slam, we want to do this on a higher level. You know, we want to raise the level of hip hop journalism. You know, we want it to be with Double XL, we wanted it to be the Vanity Fair of hip hop, you know, um, and at some points we kind of got there, but it kind of got away. But that that that, that was our, 
that was our intent, but I was lucky enough to be a part of, you know, one of the creators and founders on the ground, uh, ground zero on getting that magazine off the ground. So it's, um, you know, and yeah, it's the 50 years of hip hop, but I think it's like the 25th year, something like this, you know, so it's nice to be a part of something that you, that you can look at and say, Hey man, it still has legs. It still has some relevancy. It's still important. And I, and I think, you know, the stories that are being told in hip hop, you know, for 50 years are important. And, and, and one of the things I think allowed the genre hip hop to last 50 years is that there was a journalistic component, you know, mm -hmm. that was able to establish itself in telling the stories and giving the music uh, another dimension as, a, as opposed to the art side of it, as opposed to the music side of it, as opposed to all the other sides of it, even the entrepreneurial side of it. You know, the journalism side of hip hop, I think is just as much responsible for it being around 50 years as anything else. So I'm, I'm glad I was able to, you know, contribute to that. Are you surprised that it's around 50 years later and being celebrated as much and, and as big as it seems that, that it is here this year? In all honesty, I cannot give you a definite answer on that because it's yes and no. Because I came up in an era where I watched another form of, I'll say, boutique niche music um, that was somewhat rooted in urban America not have sustainability. And that's like disco. You know, as, as a kid of the 70s, you know, we watched disco come from a marginalized community, be it the gay, black, Latino community, and become a big thing. And we were able to watch that genre literally get killed, get removed from the surface. So with hip hop coming on the backs of that and me being a product of that, of course, there's some hesitancy. We're like, okay, well, you know, this might have a 10 year run. You know, well, what's going to happen with this? Um, and also watch and study. Because part of the study I did when I did the, 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 the study of hip hop and do the music and looking at the history and look at the alignment and the similarities of hip hop and bebop, you know, of jazz music and how the origins were basically the same, how, how the, how, you know, how the sensibilities of them were the same, how there's so many things connected to both forms of music that are so similar, they're just different time periods. And to look at what jazz had not necessarily been reduced to, but how it been like, how it like distanced itself from mainstream society when it used to be mainstream music in America. So with those two things, of course, I'm in the middle of hip hop thinking like, all right, I'm watching the same thing happen again because whether history repeats itself or not, we know for sure that history does remix itself. So there's always a part of me that's thinking they're waiting for the drop off to come with from hip hop. But, you know, I, th I thought there was such a strong, um, populace with hip hop where it, it, it never really became fringed. It did reach a mainstream level. It did reach a pop level. But there was still an element of it that never got lost from which it came from. So I've always walked through these stages and these phases of hip hop knowing that, well, there's this thing going on here, but there's still this thing going on here. So while you look at like a Kendrick Lamar, who started off as a L.A. based prodigy, mm -hmm. it rose to mainstream status where he's getting, you know, 
Pulitzers and selling out stadiums, but still has not lost that base and cast is still messed with hardcore, like underground hip hop, still mess with him and give him credit. He never broke away, you know? And while he's existing, there's a kid out of Atlanta called J.I.D. that is the next phase of him that it's like, okay, if we do lose Kendrick, we got J.I.D. to fall back on. You know, and if you look at the history of hip hop, that's always been there. Whether someone leaves, there's always somebody we can always fall back on. You know, and that's the beauty of it. And that's why I'm not surprised that it's still around 50 years because there's never really any true break off. You know, yeah. never, ever been any true break off. And, and that's, the, that's, that's the beauty of it. Yeah, one, one kind of leads to another. And, yeah. and that leads to, you know, you mentioned jazz there. And smooth jazz, I think, is how you can kind of describe George Gervin and his game, right? Just a, a smooth guy, very interesting. So let's get into this book here now that's out. Uh, it's called Ice. You co-wrote it with him. It's uh, published by Triumph Books, one of our friends uh, who's uh, helped us get some uh, great guests, including yourself here. But you know, what, what led to, to that? It's been obviously a number of years since George last played. But I'm sure it's a story that's that's great to to read and to to hear. But what led to the the writing of that book and and now for the writing of that book? Uh, George and his people, um, Mark Thomashaw specifically, uh, who like plays the role of his agent. <laughs> but they and I know I know Mark. Mark and I worked together on a project with Nike um, called Soul Provider years ago in 2000. Um, so when it came time to do his book, uh, cause he was in the middle of doing a documentary. Uh, and I, I don't, I still don't know who talked who into doing the book. If Mark talked George into like, Hey man, you need to do a book or George suggested it to him. I, I don't know the origins of where that came up, but I'm pretty sure in the process of doing the documentary, it's like, you're already telling your story right now. You might as well get something else out of it. And, um, you know, my name came up, and and from what I was told, that I was one of maybe three, but the other two were, they were like, we knew we wanted you from the beginning. Like I said, Mark and I had a relationship of working with Nike together, um, and George and I had a great relationship. George has always respected my writing. I was able to do a story on George for one of the NBA magazines, um, and we stayed in contact since then. So they've always appreciated my work, and. Um, Basically, it was just a phone call. It was Thomas Shaw, like, hey, man, Ice wants to know if you help him tell his story. And that's an easy, easy, easy <laughs> yes. That's an easy yes. And a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Mark Spears, had just got through, it just got, just finished about a year ahead of time doing a book with Spencer Haywood for Triumph. So, you know, um, I called him. He was like, hey, how are they to work with? He said, they're great. That's, you know, I was like, all right. George and Mark are asking me, you know, and, and uh, Mark Spears saying they're cool to work with. It's an easy go. Let's go. So it was really simple. It's, it's you know, one of those bundle phone calls that you're, you're, honored, you're, you're honored to get every now and then in your life. So obviously, again, a cool guy. He's got the name of Ice. He's got the great cover of that, that book as well. Uh, what did you learn about him? You know, pro, or, you know, and, and NBA Hall of Famer in the ABA as well with the Spurs. What did you learn about him that maybe you didn't know? That's a good question, man, because one of the things he told me early on, man, like, and I'm talking about not even doing the book, like early, early on, um, I think even probably before, because I, I had met George before I even did the story on him. I think I met him 
if I'm correct, maybe at the NBA's 35th anniversary at the Hall of Fame in Cleveland. I think that's where I met him in that room. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told, I remember him telling me something. I think I'm accurate on this. I know I'm, I know what I'm telling you is accurate, but I'm trying to think if the date is accurate. But he told me at the time when I met him, and we were just talking, and it, I was a Slam Magazine at the time. And he said, man, he said, I'm a, I'm a relationship guy. I believe in relationships. He's like, I've been married to my wife for 27 years. I've been with Nike 26 years. I've been with the San Antonio Spurs 28 years. I believe in, you know, relationships and holding down longevity with people you, you know, you deal with. And that stuck with me like, damn, that's a, I'm like, I want to be like that. You know, I'm serious. I want to have like, that says something to me about somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, to have those type of relationships for that long a period of time, it says something about that person. So um, going into the book, I've always kept that in mind. I've always tried to apply that to my life, you know. So when it came time to do the book, I knew that was George's foundation. Like that was a big part of who he was. And the book was like 15 years later after that. So now we're talking about He's been with his wife 40-something years. He's still working with the Spurs, you know, so he still hasn't lost that. So going into that as a foundation, it was easy for me to look at everything that happened to his life and attach it, you know, to those, to, to, to that foundation. So it became just the small parts of who he was that are extensions of that that I didn't know that um, not necessarily the stories that you can find on Wikipedia or go back and do deep dives and stories that are written of what happened in his life. You know, it was more about, I didn't know the small tentacles from that foundation of him being a relationship person that made me understand how he is that person. You know, how he was able to establish and maintain those relationships for that amount of time and how we as people can take from that and apply that to our lives and become that type of person where you're able to have those things that mean something in your life or those people or those organizations or whatever for that amount of time. Um, And, you know, those are the things that I walked away from the year we spent doing this book as also not just things about his life, but things about life in general that I can apply to my life to make myself a better person. His outlook on things, his perspective on things, you know, like how if you read the book, how he handled the situation in college where he got into the fight, which is a story I didn't know. We got to the fight and like lost his college career because of a fight that he was in Mm. and how that shaped him to become the person he became. He's like, I'm never going to ever you know, lose my cool again. And, you know, people think that his cool is about just he was born this way. He's like always been a cool dude, which he's always been kind of low key and, you know, cool. But that cool became purposeful because of an incident in his life. And, you know, knowing that story is one thing I didn't know, but it's more about how he applied that story to shape the person that he became, that he never gave anyone outside of his body and his being the power to throw him off of off of his axis in any such way, any situation. 
He's like, of course, I'm a human being, so I'm going to get mad about certain things. But I'm never, ever, ever going to be knocked off of my axis to become somebody I'm not. You know, he was never going to lose his cool anymore, ever. And to apply that to my life at damn near 60 years old now. And I've tried to do that, but to hear it from somebody and walk through his life and walk through his journey and get to see how it he applied that at every step and how he tells you stories and you listen to these stories and you're saying to yourself, man, that would have pissed me off. <laughs> but he keeps going back to like, no, nah. you know, yeah. he's flashing back to those moments and turning those moments that should be peril into moments of promise. And it's all about application. You know what I'm saying? It's all about application of how you apply certain things in your life and how you walk with that through the rest of your life. So those are the type of things that I learned and picked up throughout the book. So it's not just stories. It's like ways of life. You know, we could have named this book The Tale of Ice. You know what I'm saying? Because it really was a journey in, in, in self-fulfillment, in redemption, in like, you know, friendships and relationships and all that. So, yeah, there, there was a lot I learned more about life in doing this with him than just about his life. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Again, because you know you, you look at his career, an outstanding career, but for you, you got more out of spending time with him and hearing about his life as well. Is 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 there anybody else that you've interviewed during your days that you've kind of taken stuff away, like like George Gervin here? Yeah, def definitely Julius Irving, um, who's a big part of this book because of the role he played, nicest basketball career in his life to this day. Um, but more than anybody, well, I'll say it this way. Julius Irving, Allen Iverson, Chris Webber, Grant Hill, um, from afar, Kevin Garnett. You know, Kevin Garnett, I mean, it's much like Allen Iverson, to watching their lives from afar and what they've had to go through and how they sustained and how technically neither of them are supposed to be here. <laughs> you know, it has, has been amazing. I've been able to take watching their parts of life and apply it. But more than those people, anybody else has been Muhammad Ali. You know, Muhammad Ali has been the one athlete that, um, from a words perspective, uh, I've been able to, and, and, and from a life perspective to a certain degree, I've tried to take as much as I possibly can uh, from him um, and, and, and what he's meant and what he's fought for and what he survived and how he shaped that to in the end, uh, transition himself to be the human being that he became and what he represented. Um, not just for athletes, but for specifically black male athletes. So uh, he's definitely one without actually, and I met him early on in my life. Um, and then that always meant something to me. Uh, but just, you know, he's probably the most written about individual in the history we've had in sports. So to read everything we've read, you know, that's been written about him, and use them as like, you know, saying, you know, like Bibles as well, you know, the sports Bibles, the stories of his life and apply them. So out of everybody, I think Muhammad Ali probably uh, trumps that. But I didn't get a chance to spend, I didn't get a chance to spend time with him the way I did George Gervin. But over the course of my life, I feel like I have by as much as I've read about his life and the time I spent reading about his life. So definitely. You're about to turn 60, right? Yeah, man, tomorrow. So, so it sounds like you're a little bit more reflective as you as you you know look back at some of these guys. And again, you know, 
great careers that they have, but it's, it's, it's more beyond that. Are, you know, is that kind of what you're getting now as you look back at, at time spent with some of these, these athletes and learning their story and, and again, how you could pull that into what's becoming your story? You know what? I have never looked at it that way. I, I probably am not that you missed it, but I never, never, ever really looked at it that way. Man, I've, I've always tried to remove, even though it's kind of a juxtaposition you're in where you try to do both and you're fighting with both. It's like the yin and yang situation. I got great advice from the great writer, the legendary Brian Burwell from USA Today back mm -hmm. in the day, early on in my career. And um, he told me, always put, your, always put some of yourself in your story. And he didn't necessarily mean that by name. Mm -hmm. He meant that by spirit and soul and how you can find a unique voice and, you know, engage yourself in what it is that you're doing as far as being a journalist and being a, a writer and being a story. You know, there should always be some of you in what it is that you do. But I've always at the same time tried to remove myself from whatever situation, the story I'm doing and let the story be. And, and, you know, let the subject matter of the story be at the front and me having the responsibility of telling that story, not my story, not my part of the story, not the story from my point of view, but a story about them or the subject matter in a way that nobody else has. So the story is always led with me. So I've never, even though I've always taken what Brian has told me into what it is that I do, I've always, from my perspective, removed myself from that situation. So I've never looked at the stories that I've done and, and the subject matters and the conversations I've had and really applied them to me personally because I go into these stories. I've, I've always gone into stories, especially about individuals, about them reading what I wrote about them and learning something about themselves that they didn't know. That's always been a challenge. You know, because it's easy to write something and, you know, the person is reading the story doesn't learn anything about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this person just took the information I gave him, just put it down and did it. No, I want them to feel, I want them to have a whole nother experience or experience they never had in their life reading what I wrote about them. I want them to become aware and awake about things about themselves that they didn't know about either information I found or angles that I took in telling their story. Like I never applied my life or my career in that way. And now I look at it differently, you know, so that's always been my approach. And in doing that, you never, ever, ever include yourself. Never. So what you just asked, I have never even thought about it. And, and because of 60, I haven't been reflective on that at all. The only thing I could tell you, honestly, that, and I've said this for a long, I've, I've said this for probably 35 years, maybe that, the one thing I was going to do when I turned 60 was get my ears pierced. That was it. And the <laughs> only reason I said I was going to do that because Ed Bradley did it. The great journalist Ed Bradley. Yeah, yeah. He came on 60 Minutes one time with his ears pierced and he had to be because his gray beard was working. Yep. And I was like, Ed Bradley was like, you know, my father was a great newspaper reporter, great journalist, legendary in his own right. Ed Bradley was on that same. Ed Bradley was that guy for me. He's like, one of the reasons that when journalism even became a thing, he was that, you know, cats had posters of George Gervin and Fair Fossil on their walls. I had pictures of Ed Bradley, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and Muhammad Ali and Dr. J, whatever. But Ed Bradley was that guy. Yeah. So when he came on air with his ears pierced, I was like, that's the coolest blank I have ever seen in my life. 
you know, and I wanted to be, I wanted to be somewhere between Ed Bradley and Earl Monroe because they were the coolest black dudes ever, <laughs> you know, as far as, and, and George Gervin as well, but those two dudes. So I always say when I turn 60, I'm going to get my ears pierced like Ed Bradley so I can be cool like Ed Bradley. So I'm trying to get the beard all gray like Ed Bradley. So I'm working on that part. Go. Yeah, yeah I don't know Bradley. about the ear. I still, I'm still fluctuating now about the ear thing, but that's <laughs> well, the only question I've really done on 60, man. You, you put really it out there. You put it out there. I mean, uh, years. Yeah, and Bradley, great interviewer, as, as it sounds like you are as well. As again, when, when you can, you know, when your subjects can learn something about them that they didn't know because of your writing, that says something about you. Is is there anybody that you wish you would have interviewed that you haven't or you still are trying to get an interview with to, to, to oh, tell it. their story? That's it. Well, not they tell the story, just to be in the presence of them and seeing, yeah, just to be in the presence of them and having the honor of writing something about them. But they're, they're not here anyone. That's Nelson Mandela. You know, I just, you know, um, Nelson Mandela would have been the one he always is. That's an easy. I've always answered that question now because it's always it's always it always goes down to Nelson Mandela. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. The, the life that he lived and who he became, and what he represents. Um, yeah. And, and to be, you know, I, th I think there are people that go. I think there are people that we either find out about through our times on this earth um, either while sharing that airspace with them because they were alive at the same time we happen to be alive or finding out about them later while they're not mm -hmm. here. Um, but there are certain people that I think we can all, that for the most part, we can all look to and know that we should aspire to try to take whatever we can from that person and, and implement those parts of that people into our lives so we can become better people. And I've always looked at Mandela in that way, that, that he, was, he, he, was a, he was a global person that in my lifetime, in your lifetime, we could always look at and look at all the stuff that goes on around us and see how life, how messed up life can be at times. Mm -hmm. But we can look at this one person and realize that what he went through is greater than what we went through. You know, the same way people read books about people and what they went through, their religions are built off of. We have a living person that a religion could have been built off of because of what he went through and then what he became. Yeah. You know, his ability to forgive, you know, his ability to survive, you know, his, his ability to share, you know, those are three great things we all have the ability to do, but 99% of us don't do it at that level. And to me, you know, when those rare people come along, as a person who happens to, you know, be blessed enough to have the, a career of storytelling, to be a part of my life, meeting that person mm -hmm. would be, you know, would be special. You know, with that 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 person would be it for me. That person would be it for me. But I'll tell you a real funny story is that I'm not gonna say it came close, but there was a situation at ESPN a few years ago that I had to write something in the same week for Kendrick Lamar and Barack Obama. And I'm like, it literally like within, it was like, with, like when I mean a week, like within four days, I had to write something for both of them. And that's one of those things like, all right, 
this is pressure. Like, this is pressure, pressure. <laughs> but it was the greatest week of my life because I was like, all right, let's, let's scoop, let's see what you're about. You know what I'm saying? Let's see, let's see what you're really, really, really about. You know, so you're welcome. You know, and now I can say I wrote something for Obama. I wrote yeah. something for Kendrick Lamar. You know what I'm saying? And they're not, no disrespect, they, they, they're not Nelson Mandela, but I've had a, a moment close to that where I was able to write for two individuals at that level. And I think I came through on both, so. Yes, to say the least, you're, you're quite talented, award-winning, and uh, and certainly uh, great stories. And, you know, like you said, Nelson Mandela would be a great interview. What, what else are you working on now? How can people, obviously, the, the book is out, Ice, right now. They can find that wherever they get their books, uh, published by Triumph Books. What else are you working on? What else can we look forward to seeing from, from Scoop Jackson? Uh, we're actually working on a uh, documentary where I'm uh, uh, script writing for uh, Dominique Wilkins. Mm. So Dominique is the next subject of matter. Uh, we're don't know what a, if there's a book situation in there or not, but definitely the documentary that I'm involved in. So we're in we're in the process of shopping that right now, and treatments done, all this done. So so we're we're got got those wheels turning. Um, got another project um, that is in talks, another documentary that um, there's a few other people may be involved that I may I may play the role of co-director on I'm being talked into it by somebody I can't say that person's name because he would kill me if I did but um <laughs> I, I, as, as I told him just because I'm the size of Spike Lee doesn't mean that I am Spike Lee but they're like you know <laughs> they're like you have to you have to be on board so we're working on that um got another book project that's probably coming out in 2024 um and um and and doing uh I'm you know uh right now columnist for the Chicago sometimes so Doing weekly columns for them, so um, I'm and and a few other irons in the fire. So I'm staying active. I'm staying active. I got a lot of things going on. Sounds like it. I'm sure you're on social media. How can people follow you to to keep up with all these things coming up? Uh, definitely my Instagram account. Instagram account is my company's name, Strong Island Media Shy. Uh, Twitter is OG Three Scoop, which is OG because I'm old now. I'm sixty, right? <laughs> and then the three is because I'm Robert the Third, and then Scoop is because Scoop. You know, Facebook is Scoop Jackson writer, and then there's a LinkedIn page, which is you know Robert Scoop Jackson. So I'm more, um, yeah, I'm I'm more, um, yeah, I'm I'm not the real social media guy. I, you know, I post my work up there. I, I, I'm I'm like Denzel, man. I try to let my work do my talking. You know, I like I let the work do the thing. All the all the things that I'm doing, man. I, say, I tell my kids all the time. It'll all come out at the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> All the stuff, all, all, all the connection, all the stuff I've done will come out of the funeral, man. I, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to move in silence and get the, get the work out there. So, well, we're happy some of those stories came out before your funeral. I, let's let's leave on this. I know I saw you're a White Sox fan. You're a Knicks fan as well. Which which team do you feel better about their chances uh, of eventually winning a championship? As sad as it is, the White Sox, and as far mm -hmm. behind, behind as they are. You know, it's it's the white sauce because I I don't I don't I was about to say something I don't want to get in trouble for it, but I'll say it this way. <laughs> I don't think the spirits, I don't think the basketball gods are gonna allow James Dolan to get a championship. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't think that's gonna happen. So, you know, as bad as the White Sox are, and I'm trying to I'm trying to stay in this marriage with the White Sox because it's been a it's been a long marriage. I'm trying not to divorce them. I divorced the Knicks a couple of years ago. But now we're back in some type of courtship, you know, because my man uh, uh, Leon's there, Worldwide West is there, Tibbs is there, 
you know, Jalen Brunson, who I've known since high school, is there. You know, Derrick Rose, Pooh was there for a while. You know, they, you know, they let Oakley back in the building. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're back in, we, you know, we're back in courting one another right now with the Knicks. But everybody here in Chicago, man, they, they, they're filing divorce papers from the Sox. And I'm trying to hold on, man. I'm trying to hold on. I'm trying to hold on with the Sox. But, you know, I, I, I really, and honestly, man, um, not trying to be funny. I just, until the Knicks change ownerships, I really don't see a championship coming their way. I really don't. Hey, you, you mentioned Spike Lee, so Spike Lee is uh, is not going to be happy until that, that happens. I guess Did you you go to games, you see Spike Lee. You said you're you're the same size as him. Uh, you know what, Spike 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 is Spike is an idol of mine, man, big time. And I don't get a chance to go to enough Knicks game because you know I'm in Chicago. But when I do get a chance to go to there, you know, if, if Spike is there, I definitely holler at him. And my son went to NYU, so he saw Spike a lot. And Spike and I always see each other usually at it certain he comes to Chicago every year uh to do something with Father Michael Flager, and I always do something with Father Flager. So we see each other there, NBA All-Star Games, big events, stuff like that. Yeah, we always bump into him. It's always, you know, an honor. Spike is a Spike is a huge inspiration and always has been. But um he's um He's much more faithful to the Knicks, and I'm faithful to the Knicks. But he's much more faithful to the Knicks than I could. I, I could be. I had to. I had to file my divorce papers, man. I, I, I couldn't do it any longer. <laughs> well, here's hoping at some point uh, you get remarried to the Knicks and they get that championship for you. That uh, dude, you're, you're if we get for. remarried, they're gonna be a prenup on my end. <laughs> <laughs> We're prenuping from the very beginning. I'm telling you right now. There you go. There you go. Well, Scoop, I appreciate your time. Great stories. Great to, to meet you and, again, to, to hear about not only your story, but those of you had a chance to interview. And uh, looking forward to seeing this book again. Ice, it's out now about George Gervin. You co-wrote it with him. And uh, looking forward to, to hear about him as a man. It's, you know, behind the scenes as a player because it seems like, as you said, that's where you get the, the most impact in the interviews you had with him. Yeah, he has an, he has, it's, it's an amazing journey. And it's one that's, like I said, more about life than it is about his life. You know, so I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a, I'm not going to say it's a spiritual read, but it's a very warm, uplifting read. Yeah. So I hope everybody gets their hands, get the chance to get their hands on their experience because it, it, was, it was an incredible journey. It was an honor to go on that journey with him. So. Well, great stuff there from Scoop Jackson. We appreciate his time and a special thank you to Bill Ames with Triumph Books, once again, helping us connect with one of their authors. We thank you for watching and for listening and remind you and invite you to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get them. We'll have more great episodes coming your way soon. Thanks for joining us for JR Equipment Behind the Scenes. I'm Mike Vaccaro. We'll see you next time for another edition in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.